Well, good afternoon. Just a gorgeous Friday out there today. Perhaps over the next hour, we're not going to solve the world's problems. But together, you and I, we can create something. We can do something monumental. Yeah! Look what I have created! I have made fire! We we will perhaps create the... Thanks, Tom. Uh, We will create elements in the next hour. We will take you to... British Columbia shortly. We will take you to Quebec City shortly. We will find out what's going on on the roads in Toronto. And today is Family Law Friday where we get an update on what's going on in custody battles and news that my fellow divorced dads out there need to know. But we begin with the tale of two provinces. The story is essentially the same. What women can wear. On the coast, it's the right to bear arms. In La Belle Provence, it's the right to free expression of beliefs. Now, sticklers will say, wait a second, these laws that you're talking about, these rules and regulations, apply to both genders. Why did you mention what women can wear? Well, I think we all know what is going on behind the stories and how these rules are often applied to women differently than they're applied to men, that there is a double standard here. I want to begin with what's happening in British Columbia at the B.C. legislature. Pardon me, as I just, uh, this is what's happening. Is there, there is an ongoing rule there in the British Columbia legislature where people must cover up. Uh, and it has, uh, it, it's made news now that after a picture came out of a bunch of women saying, and, and posing with, you know, sleeveless and saying, is, is this inappropriate? And that photograph has gone absolutely uh, viral. Do we look unprofessional to you, is what Shannon Waters tweeted. She's a reporter with the BC Today newsletter, and she joins me on the phone right now. What, what are the rules and what is going on in the British Columbia legislature right now, Shannon? Good morning, Alan. Um, That is a very good question because the issue that we were kind of trying to push back against with our little short sleeve protest yesterday is that we don't know what the rules are. We aren't told precisely what it is that is appropriate for us as women who report on the legislature. We're not MLAs, we're not in the chamber, but what is appropriate for us to be wearing in the hallways at work. And what the issue seems to be is that the dress code here at the BC legislature has never really been updated to specifically include women. Uh, And here we are in 2019. I'm reading now from the acting sergeant at arms, Randy Ennis, who put out a statement saying that the legislature has a policy that men and women must wear, quote, suitable business attire. He goes on to say business attire is for the men to have a suit and tie. Uh, and that would translate to proper business attire for female members. Quote, society changes as we go forward in time, but sometimes there are things that need to be kept in tradition. Proper decorum and dress in the speaker's corridor and within the chamber is something that is being upheld at this point. Do you take issue with any of that? I 
I'm not a huge fan of the use of tradition as a justification for many things. I can completely understand the need for professionalism and perhaps for a more conservative approach to personal presentation than some other workplaces have. And honestly, I don't think that I or any of my colleagues, any of the women that I work alongside in the hallways are really ever have ever been dressed inappropriately. And this was something that the finance minister and Deputy Premier Carol James touched on yesterday. She said, you know, we don't have a problem with the way people are dressed in the hallways. And it's ridiculous that sort of arbitrarily, mostly women are occasionally pulled aside and told that what we're wearing is not appropriate. And yet, Nobody can direct us to a specific policy or rule or publicly posted document that gives us an outline of what is appropriate for us to be wearing at work. I, I will just tell you that in Ontario, we have some experience with this. Under the previous Wynn administration, uh, the premier's office had a dress code for staffers that said uh, a number of things like, you know, no short shorts. I mean, this is in the summer, you know, no no cutoffs, you know, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But I have never heard of a reporter, a journalist being approached by an official and being told you need to cover up. I've never heard of that. Well, it has happened here in the halls of the B.C. legislature. I myself have not been personally approached, but I have seen others approached both journalists and um, staffers and who have been told, you know, the shirt that you're wearing, generally something that is sleeveless or has a cap sleeve. This actually became an issue yesterday. There was a staffer who was walking down the hallway. She was wearing this gorgeous little um, cap-sleeved dress. And she was approached by a member of the sergeant at arms staff who told her it wasn't appropriate. She kind of pushed back against that a bit and continued walking down the hallway. And a minute or two later, that same sergeant at arms staffer came down and apologized and said, I'm sorry, I'm told that cap sleeves are appropriate and there's nothing wrong with what you're wearing. So we're just, we would like a little consistency so that everybody knows what the rules are and we can all just do our jobs, and be professional about it. You, I mentioned your tweet. It went viral. It just spread right across the country and around the world. Do you think anything will change as a result of it? I'm very hopeful that we will have a modern, fair, and professional dress code that comes out of this. Our acting clerk at the moment, Kate Ryan Lloyd, has been instructed to conduct a review of the policies that sort of form the basis for the dress code at the legislature right now, and she is going to come up with a decision that ensures that BC is in line with modern parliaments all around the world when it comes to the way everybody is dressed. Shannon Waters is a reporter with British Columbia Today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Alan. Put that down and go put on some clothes this instant. Let's move now to British Columbia, shall we, where you may have heard the news about this secularism, which is a more difficult word to say than I would think. Uh, The bill was tabled Thursday by the Coalition Avenir government. And who is covered by the prohibition? Well, elementary, high school teachers, principals, assistant principals, pretty much anybody that works for the government uh, or is considered to be part of the greater public service. What religious symbols are prohibited? Well, the bill doesn't offer any definition. Uh, Included, however, is the cross, kirpan, hijab, turban, uh, turban, pardon me, kippah, or anything similar. Not included are dreadlocks, tattoos of religious symbols. And who's going to enforce the rules? Well, the bill says that, quote, the person exercising the highest administrative authority will make sure employees are in compliance. However, what precisely that means 
is difficult to say. We are running out of time, but I want to bring in Graham Fraser, who is the visiting professor at the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada. Graham, thank you for being with us. Your initial response to this bill and whether or not it will ever survive a charter challenge. Well, it, um, I find it distressing in a number of ways, um, but uh, understandable. It's a debate that's been going on in Quebec for uh, uh, almost 13 years, um, which this is, this is not the first time this has been, uh, a, a government has tried to uh, introduce something of this kind, uh, and it was part of the, uh, uh, the CAC uh, government's um, campaign promise. So um, they want to get it over early in the mandate. They, you know, the premier keeps saying he wants to uh, wants to move on and get get this behind them. Um, uh, it doesn't go as far as the uh, the Patsy Québécois value of, uh, charter of values from a, f- a few years ago, um, but uh, is pretty comprehensive. Um, and will it withstand a, a charter, charter challenge? Yes, it will, because they are using the notwithstanding clause, uh, Article oh, okay. 33. That, and so right there, it's going to survive the challenge because of the notwithstanding clause, not because it actually is crafted in a way that could actually withstand a constitutional challenge. That's right, and there are some. There are some legal experts in Quebec who support this, who are saying um, they shouldn't be using the. You know, they they this this would have been an an interesting charter debate over whether um, the government has the uh, uh, the power under the charter to uh, to do this. But um, and it's worth remembering that when the notwithstanding clause was introduced, um, it was uh, it was not Quebec that insisted on it. It was, uh, uh, but. Premier Alan Blakeney felt that there might be laws that would be culturally unacceptable to rural Saskatchewan and that he wanted Saskatchewan to have the power to uh, um, be exempted from, from, from legislation. So um, it was very definitely this kind of thing that was at the root of why the notwithstanding clause was introduced in the first place. Graham Fraser is visiting professor at the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada. And Graham, I hope to have you on again when we get closer to June 15th, which is the expected time when this uh, bill is expected to be law. Thanks again for being with us. Well, thank you. Tragic news from downtown Toronto, where Toronto police say a woman in her 60s is dead after being hit by a TTC bus early this morning. Around 6.30 this morning, Toronto paramedics were called to the intersection of Bloor Street East and Sherburn, and that is where Global News' Jamie Marocker is standing by for us today. Uh, Jamie, uh, what's the latest there from the scene? Well, it is a confusing situation down here. So what we know is that around 6.30 this morning, witnesses called 911 for a woman that had been found in the middle of the road. Um, that woman was rushed to a trauma center where she unfortunately succumbed to her injuries. Um, this is where it gets a little bit confusing. So there was a TTC bus at the scene, a TTC bus heading eastbound that struck the woman. However, police are still unsure if it was the first vehicle that struck the woman or if there was another car involved. There was another vehicle at the scene. So they're trying to suss that out. 
Um, they're doing so by speaking with witnesses. There were quite a few businesses and a bank um, on that corner, so they're trying to get all of the surveillance footage and really piece this together. But I just got off the phone with Sergeant Brett Moore of Toronto Police Service Traffic Services, and he says they really are still trying to put somewhat of a puzzle together to figure out what took place. All right, Jamie Marocker, thank you so much. And Jamie Marocker is uh, putting together that puzzle as well for us tonight, and we'll have a report on uh, Global News at 5.30 and 6. Thanks, Jamie. No problem. In a fireside chat in Ottawa last week, Premier Doug Ford talked about his relationship with the media. And he said he gets along with members of the media individually, but that when it comes to what's being reported, he said it always contains a left-wing bias. In our next segment, I'll be taking your calls. Do you agree with that? Now, Ford says the good news is that he no longer needs journalists. Here's the Premier talking about his party's social media channel and how news organizations like the one you're listening to now react to it. Now there's social media. So we're circumventing the the media through our our, uh, social media and we have uh, ONN, go online and uh, look at ONN, Ontario News now. And I'll, I'll tell you, during the election, uh, they drove the media crazy because they, they want to take what you said and clip and chop and, and twist it around. But we went direct to the people. To talk about this, I am pleased to welcome Adrian Batra, Editor-in-Chief at the Toronto Sun, and Kathy English, Public Editor at the Toronto Star. Thank you so much for being here. Good to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Let's begin with the veracity, the truth of that statement. Uh, Mr. Ford said he reached more people than all of the rest of us combined. Adrian, is that true? Well, maybe there's some truthiness to it. <laughs> um, look, I, I will speak for the Toronto Sun. Um, we have a very um, big audience. We reach a, a, inordinate amount of people on a daily, weekly basis. But what I think that the premier was trying to drive at, Alan, is that they are going to their message, going directly to the people with an unfiltered message. And whereby in in what we call our legacy media, our mainstream media, we obviously put our own slant on it, our own, in his words, a bias on it. Um, but by no means is it making us irrelevant. And so uh, I just think that it's it's a, fr- a source of frustration, not from just conservative politicians, but even from those politicians on the, the political left as well, that we aren't fair to them. So now they've taken for- moved forward with different manners by which to communicate with their audience. Audience, and this is one of them. Kathy, your job at the Star is to look at fairness, to look mm-hmm. at journalistic principles uh, in your coverage, in your estimation. Is there a left-wing bias from your paper in covering the Ford government? Uh, the Star is very clear that it is a progressive news organization, small L liberal. It's not affiliated with a political party. Um, it holds all governments to account. Um, it held the, the government of Kathleen Wynne to account. It will hold the government of Doug Ford to account. That that's our job. That's that's the classic fifth, fourth, sorry, fourth estate uh, definition. And I, I just want to circle back to one point um, that the premier said. Um, this idea that uh, they have Ontario uh, news, so they don't need journalism. Mm-hmm. I think we need to make it perfectly clear that Ontario News is not journalism. It is the classic definition of propaganda. It is messaging to serve a political purpose. It does not live up to any of the standards of journalism that that citizens mm-hmm. should expect. Now, the Premier yeah. says that it drives us crazy. Mm-hmm. Is that true? Well, it doesn't drive me crazy. I don't think it drives you crazy. But um, I, I would agree with that notion, though. 
they need a rebrand. It should not be called Ontario News now. I mean, that is misleading. And they would turn around and say, well, it's pretty easy that the, the, the host is ho holding a flash and, you know, that people, we don't give Ontarians enough credit that they can't discern between that and, and what is, you know, mainstream news. But I, I just think that there is um, a value um, that we, of course, in mainstream still play. And, and that is communicating with millions of people, millions exactly. of Canadians on a regular basis. Um, but again, the, the, this is not new for, for political parties to want to communicate with their, with their voters and but their supporters. In, in this particular mm -hmm. case, especially with the branding of Ontario News Now, mm -hmm. and the way they are using caucus service money, That's right. uh, keep in mind that in opposition, they would brand that as taxpayer money when the Liberals spent caucus exactly. money. In That's this right. particular <laughs> case, they don't say that that is the case. Kathy, is there a concern? Do you have a concern about this direct messaging in this development of direct messaging from political parties? I do. I have a concern that, um, you know, I'm, I'm not underestimating the intelligence of, of voters and citizens, but, but there's a lot of research that tells us that people are confused about what is journalism, why does journalism matter? So this, I mean, it, it's, it doesn't drive me crazy, but it, it to, to me, it's, it's something that adds to the confusion level at a time when, you know, media trust is, is um, at its lowest levels, um, not as bad in Canada as it is in the States. Um, but we have a, a U.S. president who's intent on demonizing the media. So there's a lot of confusion about the role of the media, why we exist. So uh, to me, Ontario News is really muddying the waters about what is journalism, what is the purpose of journalism. And if people don't understand that it is a message with a political purpose. It, it is not a message that has um, lives up to the standards of journalism, which is to serve citizens first. A Adrian, mm -hmm. Kathy talked about her paper being progressive and small L. I guess your paper would be considered small, small C and, and, and so forth. Do you perceive a bias? in both your paper or in other bits of the media covering the Ford government? I think every media outlet has their own version of what a bias is. Yeah. Some on the left, some on the right. And, and I think that's just the reality of our world right now. I mean, we are polarized. We all have um, our, our, our own biases. Uh, those are the founding principles of, of the Toronto Sun. We're a small C conservative newspaper. We will always advocate for the, the quote, the little guy. And in many cases, that means um, usually small C conservative governments and not big, um, big L liberal governments that we would support. Now, there's certainly policies that they would have that we, we would. But um, to me, it's, it's, it's less about, you know, sort of the philosophical bent. Um, there is a problem and a challenge within the media, and, and I don't disagree with you that there is this notion of we're, of we're untrusted, but there's a reason why we've gotten to that point, and some self-reflection upon the industry itself is necessary. Um, but ultimately, the liberals used to have liberal TV. Bob Ray used to have his own propaganda uh, ma sure, a magazine that looked government. exactly like the Star. Interestingly, did that for, for Dalton McGinty. We're right. running out of time, but I, I do want to get to the central point here. With this direct messaging, are journalists obsolete? Do, journal, do journalists matter when uh, a politician like Doug Ford can directly communicate without that filter? Well, it's up to us to, to, to show our public that we matter and why we matter. And, you know, there's been a, a lot of uh, discussion within journalism in the, the last year or so about the fake news crisis mm -hmm. and all of that, and that 
this is an opportunity for us to show the public why we matter, um, to show what real news is and, and what the standards are. Last word to you, just a couple seconds. We are very relevant. The challenge we all have in the media industry right now in the legacy media is we are contracting. And so the vacuum is going to be filled somehow. Adrian Batra, Toronto Sun, Kathy English, Toronto Star, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. If you enjoyed that conversation, you can see that and more on Focus Ontario this weekend, airing 5.30 Saturday and 11.30 a.m. Sunday morning after the West Block. Just a lovely hour of political navel-gazing. I mean, that's the way you want to start your Sunday. Am I right or am I right? Donald, what do you think? Donnie? Donnie. You are fake news. Thank you, Donald. This is Family Law Friday. That's what lawyers are for. That's what lawyers are for. They're to tell us how to spend our money. And where are my divorced dads at? My separated moms, my single parents, those that are worried about custody, those that are worried about paying their bills at the end of the month and trying to get alimony and child support and spouses support. And I listen, I feel your pain. I know this thing. It will eat you up inside. But there is light at the end of the tunnel. And here's another thing that I know personally from having gone through the crucible, folks, is that the experience that you are having will, every time you talk to somebody else, every time you open up about what you're, what's going on in your life, somewhere, it's worse. It could always be worse. This is the thing that you take away from this. It's difficult. It's horrible. It can be stressful on you it's not easy but it can always be worse like for example a family law arbitrator has upheld an ontario's mother refusal to have her children vaccinated citing a leading advocate in the u.s anti-vaccination movement who claims vaccines do more harm than good earlier this month the toronto-based arbitrator directed the father who had requested an order forcing the kids to be immunized to actually pay $35,000 of his ex-wife's legal costs. Now, though he's not a judge, the arbitrator's decision is indeed binding. Man, I don't want to get into the vaccine issue there, but if you're that dad, you're like, I'm just trying to get my kids vaccinated. I'm just trying to do right for them. And now I have an arbitrator saying, not only can they not be vaccinated, but I got to pony up 35 k that seems, that seems unfair. But if there's one thing that you learn is that the law is not often fair. Christy Marina is a family law lawyer and a partner at McDonald and Partners, and she has joined us on this radio program before. She's a friend of this radio program, and I'm pleased to have her well, uh, back on the show. Christy, how are you doing on this Friday? I'm good, thanks, Alan. How are you? I'm well. I am fantastic. Let's just talk about the story I just talked about. How often are you in disputes going in front of an arbitrator, and how does that work? It's actually pretty common, and it's becoming more common. So, arbitration is actually a private dispute resolution system for people who don't want to go through the court system for whatever the reason may be. Some people want their decisions made faster. Some people don't want it in the court system. For whatever reasons, people choose 
to switch their matter or start their matter in arbitration. And it's becoming quite common. And some people will go straight to mediation, sorry, straight to arbitration first. And some people will try to mediate the matter first and say, listen, if we can't mediate it, we will go to arbitration. So is arbitrator common. is cheaper. It's just, it, it's, this is a cost saving uh, or, or, or to speed it up. Is that why? Mm-hmm. No, it's actually not always a cost saving because unlike the court system where you don't actually pay the judges, like so the individual parties don't pay the judges when they have to go to court, parties who retain a private arbitrator have to pay the arbitrator's fees. So you're paying the arbitrator to be your judge. All right, I have to tread carefully here because uh, I spoke with Christy before the program, and I, I don't want to wade into anything that is going to get you uh, disbarred or anything well, like thank, that. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. Because then you're going to move into my basement, and uh, I just, I'm sorry. I, I, I need that for when uh, my fiancé says, <laughs> you're you're in, in, in deep, go down to the basement. But uh, nevertheless, uh, let's get back to the, how often are you seeing issues like something like a, a vaccination? I mean, this is not even a custody dispute. This is about something like I need to get my kids vaccinated well it falls under custody and access in those mechanisms right so normally what happens is you give the arbitrator you will select the issues that you want the arbitrator to decide so when you go into arbitration you sign an arbitration agreement with your arbitrator and you will specifically select what issues you want the arbitrator to decide. So if they chose custody, access, and all matters flowing from those, then that's where vaccination and things like that will fall in if they've selected all child-related issues, or perhaps they specifically selected that as an issue. But you give the arbitrator the authority to decide the specific issues you want them to decide as part of your arbitration agreement. $35,000 in legal costs is what dad has to pay. Uh, That seems like double jeopardy when you go into this. Is that something that you have to be aware of? Well, you have to be aware of, and this it's the same holds true if you're in court. When you go into a legal proceeding, the party who is more successful or totally successful will likely have some component of their legal fees paid by the unsuccessful party. So it's a risk assessment you have to do going into either the court or the arbitration process. If you are not successful, you are probably going to have to pay some component of your partner's costs. Uh, so, so you know, you lose, you lose, lose. It, and and is, that's just a risk assessment going in? I mean, what do you tell your clients in terms of that risk? Yeah, it is lose-lose. We warn them. We warn them. We say, you know, we, we sit down with our clients and we say these are, you know, the pros and the cons of moving forward. This is, you know, we do an evaluation of a position because, you know, I don't like losing, so I don't want to bring a losing position to court or arbitration. So we have those discussions with our clients and we say, you know, here's the risk, here's the pros, this is what we think. We do a legal analysis. And then part of all of that is, you know, if you are successful, you will most likely recoup some of your costs. If you are not successful, you will most likely have to pay. It's in the discretion of the judge, but that's normally how it works. And how do you get an arbitrator that you know, like, how do you pick one? Is it just random? Is just the, this, the, the, the arbitrator just comes up? No, so uh, it's usually some respected high-level family law lawyer. In family law, anyways, the same would hold true for whatever area you're in. But in family law, you know, we 
we we have a list of you know the senior family law lawyers who are trained to do the arbitration, and the parties will usually canvas a, a number of names amongst themselves and their lawyers, and the arbitrator is then agreed to of that pool of names. I always like to leave our interviews, Christy, with a piece of common sense from you, because mm-hmm. I know you have a lot of common sense in terms of what you see, in terms of your clients coming in. Give me something that my audience can take away from this interview to say, here's something because common sense if you ever run into a problem with family law. Well, if, in, if you ever run into a problem with family law, I mean, the first thing of common sense is, you know, go and talk to a lawyer about it. Don't just go off and do your own thing. Talk to a lawyer and we would evaluate based on your personal preferences to bring it back to this arbitration story. What might be the best route for you? Because what might be the best route for one family in court might not be the best for the other. They might prefer arbitration. And there's all sorts of reasons a specific family would prefer arbitration over the court system. And we would decide, you know, based on your specific case, which one is better for you. Christy, always great to have you on the program. Yes, our lawyers are damn good. You bet they are. I approve. Christy Morita is a family law lawyer and partner with McDonald and Partners, and I'm hoping is not moving into my basement. No, no, no. Thank you, Christy. We will see you again. And uh, that (laughs) that concludes this edition of Family Law Friday. Do you remember this story uh, when a guy took a dip? Remember this? This is uh, from uh, Ripley's Aquarium. Remember this guy? This is last September when Buddy just peeled right down to the wood and jumped into the water. It was jazz night, though, so... Jazz hands. Jazz hands. Jazz hands. Well, here's an update. A man accused of swimming naked in a shark tank in the Toronto Aquarium is now set to stand trial in September. Crown and defense lawyers have agreed now to trial dates of September 19th and 20th. Set your calendars. Toronto police allege that Weaver assaulted a man outside of Medieval Times on October 2018. Now, that part is not even close to being funny, and I probably should back away from the comedy because that uh, that charge was quite serious. But then on, uh, they allege Weaver went to the city's Rickley, Ripley's Aquarium two hours later, stripped of his clothes, hopped the barrier, and jumped into the shark tank. And, of course, that video has gone viral. The man faces one count of assault causing bodily harm, and that is quite serious. Mischief under 5,000 and mischief interfering with property. If we could, for just one moment, separate the assault from from the rest. And I know I I can't do that, but I'm going to anyway because it's my radio program. But when I saw that, and I think every man and I think every woman thought to themselves, well, two things. One, how cold is the water? And two... I think all of us collectively said... He's kind of my personal hero. That's right. He is indeed kind of my personal hero. Uh, In Houston, Houston, Texas, the Drug Enforcement Agency, the DEA, is now looking mm -mm, for a contractor to do something specific, namely burn marijuana. Not in a put-it-in-your-bong kind of a way. But no, a much more significant job. The agency is looking now for a vendor with the ability to burn a thousand pounds of pot bundles per hour 
for at least eight hours a day. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a lot of sativa. They say why? Well, because all of this stuff, you see, gets seized at the oh, border. it's contraband. It's, it's, all, it's all contraband. The, anything DEA has, they're just burning up, Rob. That's what's so going on. I'm just so used to being Canadian and it being legal that why would they burn it? Because it's, it's illegal. illegal. It is the devil's lettuce, ladies and gentlemen. You know this and you know it to be true. I hope you've enjoyed this radio program in this week on the radio. I am so pleased that you are with me for any part of this journey. I do truly appreciate you listening and you watching. I'll be back on this radio station at 6 p.m. tonight and on television at 5.30 with my co-anchor, Farah Nasser. And until then, I really hope that we have built something together. We have pounded our chest and we have done something. We have built something and we have made something. Go forth today and be proud. I will see you on this radio station at 6 p.m. and again Monday at noon. Yeah! Look what I have created!